For the rest of us, I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. We're looking at the first 18 verses, sorry, Hebrews chapter 10. We're looking at the first 18 verses of Hebrews 10 this morning. We kind of jumped ahead last week. The scheduling just worked that way, and we're kind of going back to pick up the first part of chapter 10, which we missed last week. And um, next week, we'll be finishing up chapter 10. So we're, we're getting down to the end of the book of Hebrews here, and we're getting down to the end of this long section where Hebrews has pointed us to Christ as our great high priest. And we're going to find out soon. We found out a little bit last week. We'll find out again next week. The author of Hebrews is going to start turning the heat up on us and say, if all of that's true, you should be living this way as a result. So, but we're not there quite yet. So um, to start this morning, um, if you're familiar with the Marvel superhero universe made uh, famous by the movies, movies like Captain America, Civil War. Wanda Maximoff in that story is learning how to be a superhero. But she's making some mistakes along the way. And when you have superpowers, mistakes can have very big consequences. First, in the movies, she had gotten duped into supporting the supervillain Ultron instead of the good guys. And then when she finally realized that she was on the wrong side of things and she switched, she was still learning how to use her powers. And in a battle against another subsequent villain, she inadvertently caused an explosion to destroy part of a building, causing the death of a number of international aid workers from the normally reclusive African country of Wakanda. And this was an international incident all over the news that had world nations in uproar. And being a sensitive soul, Wanda is very aware and she's very burdened by her failures, by her sins. And in the decisions she makes going forward and the actions she takes, she's very motivated to atone for them. Isn't that such a common human sort of instinct to want to do something to make up for our sins, to somehow atone for them, to make them right. I remember a time when I was in college, I was struggling with a sin I just couldn't seem to stop doing, and I was kept getting sucked back into it. And as this happened to me again and again, I felt the desire somehow to make up for my transgressions. I tried praying more, and often my prayers began like this, God, I'm really really, really, really sorry. Really sorry. I'm so sorry. Ugh, I can't believe it. I did it it again. Sorry. So sorry. As if, if I groveled enough before God, somehow I could make up for what I'd done. Well, again, this is such an innate human instinct. We want to make up for what we've done. We want to somehow atone for it. But what today's passage shows us is that if we are followers of Jesus Christ, if we are trusting in Jesus Christ, then this instinct is no longer relevant to us. 
at least as far as God's willingness goes, to invite us into God's presence and to embrace us in relationship. Listen to these words again from our passage this morning, verses 17 and 18. God says to his people through Jeremiah the prophet, Hebrews is quoting this, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, Hebrews comments, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Then in verse 10, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And verse 14, for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. We'll go a little deeper into these words later, but, but for now, notice the big point. One sacrifice has already been made for all of our sins. Once for all. One and done. A sacrifice not made by us, but made by our great high priest, Jesus Christ. It's all that is needed to definitively and forever give us forgiveness for all of our sins. It's all that's needed for us to experience God's extreme forgiveness. What I picture here is our kids when they were maybe one, one and a half, and they were learning to eat solid food. They start with mush, right? And they want to feed themselves this mushy stuff, this oatmeal or whatever. Often uh, they have a little highly colored rubber spoon, right? But sometimes they're just trying to shovel it in with their little hands. And by the time they're done, they are wearing more food than they've ingested. <laughs> and sometimes they're aware of it and they don't like feeling dirty and icky and sticky. And so they start wiping themselves with their little dirty hands in a futile attempt to clean themselves but they can't clean themselves, can they? All they succeed in doing is smearing around the mess. They need us as parents to go get a cloth, soak it in warm water, and then carefully and persistently, even though they're wiggling, scrub their faces, their arms, and whatever else. Sometimes in the summer, their whole top half <laughs> until they're clean. Those little ones are like us. They're trying to clean up their sins, so to speak. <laughs> they they, they want to try, it's, it's, and we want to try. It's our instinct to try, but we're not capable of it like them. We need someone else to come along who's more capable. And in the case of us, it's a priest. Right? We've been seeing this over the Sundays as we've been working our way through Hebrews. What an important role priests play in helping us to get cleaned up so that we can draw near to God and so that we can get into God's presence. And we have an amazing high priest we've been learning in Jesus Christ. And, and I, as I look at the overall structure of this passage, it's one big contrast. A contrast between the Old Testament priests who offered sacrifice after sacrifice, never ending, and Jesus as priest who offers one single, final, one-and-done sacrifice that's perfectly and completely effective to deal with our sins so that we can come into God's presence and have a relationship with Him.
So let's look at how the author of Hebrews expresses this contrast. We'll begin with the Old Testament priests and their sacrifices and then contrast that. So first, in terms of the Old Testament sacrifices, verse 1, those sacrifices, Hebrews tells us, are only a shadow of a greater reality, those Old Testament sacrifices. What's a shadow? It's a faint image. It's a, a pointer. It has no substance of its own, but it shows you something, though not clearly. It's not the real thing. The shadow is not the real thing. What's the real thing? What are the Old Testament sacrifices a shadow of? The author of Hebrews in verse 1 says simply of the good things that are coming. But if you've been reading along in Hebrews through the past few chapters, we already know, we've already seen what these good things are because Hebrews has introduced us to them. A new covenant, a new and better priest, Jesus Christ, who has offered a new and better sacrifice. We'll see how later our passage will unpack this. But before we get into that, the second shortcoming of the Old Testament sacrifices is that they never really got the job done. They were ineffective. As verse 1 puts it, they can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Now, this Greek word translated perfect in, in Hebrews and in the New Testament, this is an important insight, it doesn't exactly mean perfect the way we tend to use the word perfect today, as in never a single error, error, blemish, or fault ever, right? Like I got a perfect test score, or this person is just perfect. It doesn't mean without a single error or blemish ever. The Greek word that we translate perfect rather means mature, complete, having fully become what God intends for us to be, having arrived, having reached maturity, having reached the destiny and the intention of what we have been, what we are made for, what we are saved for. And the point is that the Old Testament arrangement never achieved for us what God always wanted to achieve which was a reconciled, open, solid, stable relationship between us and God. Instead, what did the Old Testament sacrifices do? Well, verse 3, third, instead of solving our problem, they just kept reminding us of the problem. To back this up in verses 2 to 3, Hebrews reasons with us, if the Old Testament sacrifices had really been fully effective, the priest wouldn't have had to keep offering them. And the people wouldn't have had to keep being conscious of their sins. Let me illustrate this. Imagine you go to the dentist with a toothache. You're in pain, and, and the dentist says, no problem, we'll take care of that. And they do, and you go home feeling so much better. Two days later, though, you're awakened in the middle of the night because the toothache is back. Same tooth, same spot. You go back next morning to the dentist and they say, oh, don't worry, this time we'll take care of that for you. And they tinker around with the tooth some more and they give you the bill and they send you home and you're feeling better. Three mornings later, though, you guessed it, killer toothache. You get the point. And that's 
just like the Old Testament sacrificial system. Verse 11, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. And so fourth shortcoming of the Old Testament sacrificial system, it was doomed to failure from the start. It could never succeed. Because verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Wait, what? All those years in the Old Testament, the sacrifices never really worked? Why did God require them then? Well, they did serve a temporary purpose to remind people of their sins and to give people a temporary reprieve from their sins. God was willing to accept them temporarily so people could maintain a relationship with God. But like that toothache that the dentist couldn't cure, they, the sacrifices never permanently cleaned us up or made us acceptable in God's sight. And so finally, fifth, in relation to the shortcomings of these Old Testament sacrifices, Hebrews tells us now that God has made a better solution through Jesus Christ, the Old Testament sacrifices, verse 18, are no longer necessary. This reminds me of back in the winter, I broke a bone in my hand. And I went to urgent care right after it happened. They took an x-ray. They realized I broke a bone. And they gave me a temporary brace. It was just what they had on the shelf, which was really for wrists, not hands. But it was the best they could give me. It didn't really do anything to keep my fingers or my hand in the right place to heal, but it was better than nothing. At least it reminded me not to whack the hand on something, and it offered some protection. But a few days later, when I went to a specialist, and I got measured up, and I got the proper splint made, custom fit for my hand that was comfortable and provided the right kind of support for my hand so now my bone could heal, what did I do with that wrist brace? I chucked it aside, right? It was no longer necessary because I now had something much better that actually did the job. And likewise, now that we have Jesus' one and done sacrifice, further sacrifices for sin aren't necessary anymore. Not for the Jews in the time of the book of Hebrews. Not for Christians today. Not for anyone. Not for Wanda Maximoff, if she was a real person. And we could use some superheroes in the world today. It, it's no longer necessary for me, sacrifices for sin. And it's no longer necessary for you. There's nothing we can add. No sacrifice we can make in addition to what Christ has already done. He has made a, a perfect, once-for-all, once for all time sacrifice, and as a result, we experience God's extreme forgiveness, complete forgiveness, lasting forgiveness. And so there's nothing we need to do to atone for our sins. Christ has done it all. That's good news. <laughs> That's worth singing about and shouting about. Well, let's turn now, by way of contrast, from the Old Testament sacrifices and their shortcomings to Christ's one-and-done sacrifice and see some ways that it's better. First, it's better because it's what God wanted all along. 
Here Hebrews is drawing on a theme which will, we find scattered all across the Old Testament. If you've read the Old Testament, these, uh, uh, rather the theme is that our religious sacrifices aren't ever what God most wants. That's in the Old Testament. What God most wants, rather for his people, is that we trust God enough to do what God says and to live out God's way. We find this, for example, in 1 Samuel 15, where Samuel the prophet tells King Saul, Thus saith the Lord, Saul, go fight this certain king, defeat the king, and destroy all of the plunder, and kill the king. Well, Saul goes, defeats the king, defeats, uh, defeats the king, but brings back a bunch of sheep and goats. And when Samuel shows up, he's like, what's with the sheep and goats? You were told to destroy everything. And Saul said, oh, well, we thought we should offer these to God as a sacrifice. And what does Samuel say? He rebukes Saul. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. We find this theme also in the prophet Amos, chapter 5. God says, even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Away with the noise of your songs. This is God talking. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll down like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. That's what God wants. And we see this theme also in the verse that Hebrews actually quotes, and there's other verses we could look at, but Hebrews quotes Psalm 40, starting in verse 8. Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, God, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them. And then Hebrews comments, though they were offered in accordance with the law. And then the, the psalmist said, but here I am. I have come to do your will. Hebrews is saying, this was fulfilled in Jesus. Here I am, Lord, I have come to do your will. God sets aside the first, the, the sacrifices, the, the burnt offerings, to establish the second, someone who would actually come and do God's will. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What did God ultimately want? Not sacrifices, but for someone to come and do God's will. In this case, for someone to come in love and to offer his own life as a once-for-all sacrifice so that God's people can be forgiven. What God has always wanted most is not the routine, not the ritual of sacrifices and of worship, not the music, but rather hearts that love God and are obedient to God and live that out day by day. And that's the kind of heart Jesus had as he offered his own life in love for the sake of God's people, for the sake of the world. That's a much better sacrifice. That's much more what God wants. So his sacrifice is better. The second reason that Jesus' sacrifice was better, it's complete. It's once and for all. It's one and done. It's all that's needed. No more endless sacrifices day by day, year by year. No, verses 12 and 13. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered 
for all time, one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Jesus as priest doesn't need to stand every day in God's presence working and offering sacrifices. No, he did that once and then he could sit down. Done. Completed. It's finished. Now he's just waiting for everyone to recognize that he's our priest and he's our king and our leader so that we trust him and we follow him. He's done his job. Now the ball's in our court to respond. Third reason Christ's sacrifice is better. It makes us perfect and it makes So again, first on this word perfect. How can we be perfect if we're still being made holy? <laughs> How can we already be made perfect? Well, again, in the New Testament, remember perfect means complete. It means mature. It means we've become all we're meant to be. We've reached our destiny. And in this context, what, what Hebrews is saying, what it means, I think, is that the sacrifice Jesus made accomplished for us and in us, all that was needed for us to be back in God's presence, back in a right relationship with God. It doesn't mean we're always perfect in our hearts or in our lives, or that what we do is always perfect. It means rather that we're in a perfect situation in relationship to God. We can freely enter God's presence now because of that sacrifice. We're, we've arrived. We have free access to God's presence. And anything wrong, any shortcoming is on our end. It, it's um, in our internal sense of guilt or our hesitancy. But any barrier to us going into God's presence is not on God's end anymore. It's just our hangups. Because Christ's sacrifice is perfect. And it has put us in a perfect place in relationship to us being able to have a relationship with God. And so God is perfectly willing to talk to us no matter what, no matter what we've done, no matter what we've been thinking, no matter how we're feeling. So I think that's what perfect means here, given the fact that as we're going to see now, we're still being made holy. We haven't arrived. So notice this word holy. Some of your translations maybe have sanctified, which means made holy. Notice that in verse 10, it says we have been made holy. And then in verse 15, it says we're being made holy. So which is it? Already made holy or still being made holy? Well, yes, both, as often is the case in the Bible. They were not an either or culture or way of thinking. They were a both and in many cases. And this becomes a bit clearer when we understand what the word holy means. Because holy is a, it's a very much misunderstood word. Holy does not mean that we're all pious like the church lady on Saturday Night Live, for those of you who remember. 
Uh, it doesn't mean we're too religious to have any fun. It doesn't mean we keep all the rules flawlessly. We never curse. We never dance. We don't go to certain movies or whatever. That's not primarily what it means. In fact, holiness is first and foremost not about our behavior at all. Holiness is not something we earn or we achieve. Rather, holiness is about our status. Not our achievements, but our status. To be holy means we belong to God. It means that when God draws a circle around what belongs to God, what is God's, we are in that circle. Holy things are the things in the circle. Common things, ordinary things, are outside the circle. When something is holy, whether it's a sacrifice or uh, a bowl, someone makes a bowl, think the Old Testament tabernacle, and they bring it for the priests to use, there's blood put on it, a little ceremony, another, a little ritual, and then that bowl moves from a common bowl, an ordinary bowl, to a holy bowl, and it's inside God's circle. It's to be used for God's purposes, and you better not use it for anything else anymore. To be holy means a change of status. It means to be brought inside of God's circle, to be included in what belongs to God and what's associated with God. And Hebrew tells us, Hebrews tells us that as the result of Jesus' sacrifice, God has drawn that circle to include us. God has brought us inside the circle of what's holy. We have been made holy. We are not common or ordinary anymore. But on the other hand, unlike that bowl, we are still being made holy because we have choices. Because if we're going to belong to God and be included in the circle of what's holy, we can't stay the same. It's a little bit like getting into a prestigious college. It's that time of year. Our daughter, Sarah, just went off to college a couple weeks ago. She didn't go to a super prestigious college, but let's just say you got into Stanford or Harvard or a place like that, and you chose to go there. You get your acceptance letter, you pay your deposit. Now you are a Harvard student. You are a Stanford student. You have bragging rights. <laughs> but you haven't done anything yet except get selected, get admitted. Now, no doubt you did a lot of hard work to get that acceptance letter, but uh, so the analogy breaks down a little bit, but you haven't actually showed up and done college level work yet. Nevertheless, you can brag. Yeah, I'm going to Stanford. I'm going to look at my Harvard t-shirt, right? You're in. But yet there's a lot of work ahead, right? <laughs> you are going to spend four years becoming a Harvard or a Stanford student. You are going to have to be transformed in your thinking, maybe in your study habits, maybe in your work ethic. You've got a lot to live up to. And we hope you make it. <laughs> well, that's how it is with being made holy. You've, you have been made holy, but that's just the beginning. 
from now on, you're going to be getting made holy. You belong to God. So now you're going to get shaped to look and act a whole lot more like someone who belongs to God. As Hebrews puts it in verse 16, God says, I will put my law in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. That's what's happening, Hebrews says, as a result of Jesus' sacrifice. Our situation has changed. We've been invited in, into God's presence, into relationship with God. And as a result, it's changing our life, our lives. It's changing our minds. It's changing our hearts. Notice all the, the change. This is very important. The change results from our new relationship with God. We didn't have to change to get that new relationship. Okay, finally, fourth way that Christ's sacrifice is better. It provides complete forgiveness. Verse 17, God says, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. And so we're back where we started. With Christ's amazing one-and-done sacrifice, which results in extreme forgiveness. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, we are forgiven, period, end of story. And we don't have to make up for our sins. We don't have to atone for anything. It's finished already. Christ has done it. He sat down. It's done. You, you've probably heard those stories of, about paying it forward where someone at a restaurant um, or drive through line goes to pay their bill only to find out that some mystery person already paid it for them. Has that ever happened to you? Yeah, it, it happened to me too once. I was, um, I was out with a friend. We were busy catching up, talking, ordering. And when it came time to pay, the restaurant staff person told us someone else has already paid. And that's all they would say. You know, we're looking around. <laughs> um, and when that happens to you, first, you're surprised, right? And, and then you feel a little helpless. <laughs> but you can't insist on paying because it's already been paid. <laughs> There's nothing to pay. And so then all you can do is feel grateful and maybe joyful. And that's the way it is with Jesus once for all sacrifice and the extreme forgiveness which flows out of it. You can't pay for your own sins, for your own shortcomings. You can't be like Wanda Maximoff and, and want to make up for the mistake and the wrong of your past because Jesus has already paid all that. The bill is paid. Again, as verse 18 puts it, where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. One and done. Paid in full. Forgiven in full. It's extreme forgiveness, and we can't add anything to it. What a sacrifice. What forgiveness. What a priest we have. How can we respond then to this amazing gift? Well, we can be grateful. Like I was at that mystery donor who, who paid for my and my friend's lunch. 
And we can all the more be grateful because we know who paid on our behalf. We can be grateful to Jesus. We can say thank you. We can honor the purpose for which Jesus paid for our sins, which was to bring us inside of that circle so that we could belong to God and be holy. Again, this isn't holy isn't about keeping a set of rules. It's about realizing who you are and who you belong to, who I belong to. We are gods. We belong to God. God has drawn his circle around us, brought us inside of it and said, mine, this one belongs to me. And if you belong to God and you've been invited into God's presence and to draw near, then you can't keep being the same ordinary common person and keep living in the same ordinary common way that you used to. Because that's not who you are anymore. You're a different person now. So in conclusion, how should we respond when we, when we sin and when we mess up? Well, we can certainly be sorry, like we were this morning. We confessed our sins. We told God we were sorry. But there's no sense beating ourselves up about it. No sense somehow trying to make up for it or to atone for it. Because it's already been atoned for. With a one and done sacrifice. And so we're forgiven just by asking for forgiveness. And then we can go out and we can live in freedom. Grateful that we have an amazing high priest who offered himself for us once and for all. So we can draw near to God's presence. And so we can become the holy people that God wants us to be. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your amazing sacrifice for our sins. I pray that the power and the awesomeness of it will touch us deeply and cause gratitude to rise in our hearts and that you'd give us a clear vision of who we are now that would cause us to begin to live more and more that way. By your power, and by your grace, each time we stumble along the way and you smile at us and pick us back up, may we become a holy people. Through your extreme forgiveness, amen.